0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, Acts 17. Last week we hit the pause button on our study through the book of Acts as I shared a message the Lord put on my heart for us as a church from 2 Kings chapter 19 and Psalm 92 that I titled A Word for the Remnant. If you missed that study, I really, I really encourage you to, to listen to it. Um, our church app, podcast, website. Um, I really believe God wants us to hear these things and, and wants to do uh, those things in us in this next season, both individually and corporately as a church. That, that, that uh, work of us taking root downward and bearing fruit upward, it would be true. It would be true for us. I really believe that God wants to do a fresh work once again of that in each of our lives. But this morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of Acts. Today, we're beginning a two-part look at Paul's time alone in Athens, which we'll be covering in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through verse 34, through the end of the chapter. But in part one today, we're going to be studying verses 16 through 23. But for some context, since Paul and his ministry team arrived in Greece... He and Silas were beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. Then they were sent away secretly by night from Thessalonica by the believers there because, you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy, their lives were threatened by these gospel-rejecting Jews who had gathered a mob to violently attack them and thankfully they couldn't find Paul and his team. Then... After that, Paul was brought by the believers in Berea to the sea to get away from the gospel-rejecting Jews who had found out that Paul was preaching in Berea. These men from Thessalonica traveling those uh, miles to Thessalonica, stirring up the crowds in Berea against Paul. And we found that some of the believers in Berea joined Paul on the roughly 300-mile journey by sea now to the southern portion of Greece to the city of Athens. I'd be kind of safe to say that for many of us, if God were to show us those things up front about what ministry life might look like, I think we would ask God for a second option. Do you have an island somewhere, Lord, that you can send me to where I can sit down and put my feet up? chill out. Just enjoy my life a little bit. A little bit easier. All Paul got was this vision of Macedonia. That's the thing that solidified in Paul's heart that God was calling them to the country of Greece, the northern part of Greece, Macedonia. And and, and it's a vision of a man crying out saying, come, help us. All Paul knew was God wants us to bring the gospel. But all these different things, the beating and imprisonment and the sending away by night and then the sending away to sea, those things weren't divulged to Paul up front. You know, oftentimes for us, we, we are unwilling to take a step into something because we want the whole picture up front. I want to know what I'm getting myself into before I'm going to say yes, before I'll I'll step out in faith, and yet it no longer is faith at that point, is it? I mean, if God just told us what all of it was going to look like, it wouldn't really require us to trust him. We could easily rely on our own understanding. We could plan our own way. And yet God calls us to a different sort of life as his people. He might give us just one thing. Come help somebody. But what you're not seeing is all the details that are going to unfold that God has. Which may look really bad from an earthly sort of temporal standpoint. And yet there is a greater glory. There is a greater redemptive work that God is accomplishing. And he's doing that in each of our lives. He was doing that with Paul and Silas and Timothy. Because mixed into those situations of persecution, we found the gospel going out in these different cities. People getting saved, lives being delivered from the hold of the enemy, discipleship happening and churches being planted and encouraged and believers strengthened. The Lord has protected and preserved Paul and his ministry team. He's he's used persecution to get Paul into a new area where the gospel hadn't yet been preached. And though Paul's going to be left alone in Athens, uh, Silas and Timothy, still back in Berea, The believers in Berea who made sure Paul arrived safely are now being sent back by Paul with the message to Silas and Timothy to come join him quickly. Paul was not truly alone because the Lord was with him and was going to use him now in the city of Athens. And with that context in mind, let's look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul had just finished doing a lot of traveling 50 miles from Berea to the port where they would sail out of, then upwards of 300 miles of being on a ship traveling south along the eastern coast of Greece. The believers who had joined Paul have now gone back to Berea. Paul's waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens. And as Paul waits for them, it seems he decides to walk around. Check out this famous city of Athens that Paul no doubt had heard a lot about from his youth. Now, for a bit of background According to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, while written history of Athens began around the seventh century BC, there's archaeological data that suggests Athens was important even during the Mycenaean area uh, era. Sorry, around 1600 to 1200 BC, Athens was the political and intellectual capital of the Attic region of Greece, and it had great influence in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament. Athens was the symbol and center of Greek life and Western thinking. It was an important center of education in the Greco-Roman period. And as Greek culture spread, Athens became a center of cultural and academic advancement and dissemination, which continued until A.D. 529 when the emperor Justinian shut down Greece's philosophical academies. But on top of Athens being the center of culture, the center of education, the center even of fine arts, we're told that the city was overrun with idolatry. And as Paul was confronted with seeing the overabundance of idols, statues, temples, altars. In fact, uh, one uh, philosopher in that day, around the time of Paul, wrote that in Athens, you were more likely to run into a god than a man. That was how abundant idolatry was in the city of Athens. If you've ever heard of the Acropolis... That's where the Parthenon was. That's where these different grand structures were built that were just temples to these false gods. And as Paul was confronted again with all of this, all the overabundance of all these false gods, we're told that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw all of it. His spirit was provoked. That word provoked speaks of being or becoming incited or stirred up in one's emotions or feelings or reactions. He was provoked as he saw that the city was given over, literally swamped by idols, the rampant idolatry being an overwhelming sign to the Apostle Paul of how lost. The people of Athens were that created in Paul an even greater burden in him to want to preach Jesus to them. But while there's idolatry that exists today that's similar to the idolatry Paul was seeing there in the city of Athens in his day, there's still religions that have idols and statues and temples and altars where different forms of sacrifice and worship and prayers take place, there is a much less blatant or obvious and much more subtle idolatry that's even more rampant in our day that's just as dangerous and in a lot of ways is even more deceptive. The kind of idolatry I'm referring to is an idolatry that isn't even necessarily attached to outward or physical things, but regardless is an idolatry that takes place in the hearts of people. See, idolatry can be described as, as, as trusting, serving, or giving worship to something that is not God. You know, some examples, not an exhaustive list in any way, shape, or form, of some dangerous and deceptive and, and less blatant or obvious kinds of idolatry that, that people in their hearts can worship at the altar of are the idol of pleasure, the idol of leisure, comfort, the idol of money, the, the idol of material possessions, the idol of success or popularity or position. the idol of intellect or knowledge, the idol of politics, the idol of relationships, the idol of beauty or fashion or fitness, the idol of self. You know, these types of idols are, are much less blatant or obvious. They're much more subtle, but they're just as dangerous and even more deceptive, and and they're idols that aren't just found in the lives of unbelievers, but can also be found in the lives of, of Christians, too, and we have to be on guard against all forms of idolatry. The Apostle John spoke into this in one of his writings later in his life as an aged man the Apostle John, as he finished up his first epistle, the letter of 1 John, in his final verse of that letter, he wrote this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, 21. He said, little children, this is John signing off. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. He's speaking to believers there in that letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols john was writing from ephesus and the church of ephesus being one of the recipients of this letter this statement of john's would be fitting because ephesus had one of the largest temples of idolatry and and pagan worship in all of the roman empire and that was the temple of artemis or diana But but I don't think John is only speaking specifically to that form of idolatry that was taking place at the temple, where people went and made sacrifice to, to Diana, where they bought their little carved idols. No, and an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. So by that definition, all sorts of things can become an idol, Again, idolatry can be described as trusting, serving, or giving worship to something that is not God. So whatever we give our time or attention or affection or devotion to other than or above God can become an idol in our lives. You know how oftentimes we can find out of something as taken the place of idolatry in our lives is, is how we react when that thing is threatened. No, 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 like, when we freak out, no, like, it, it shows a deeper heart condition of what our attachment to that thing actually is, what kind of place in our hearts that that thing holds. And whether it's an actual physical idol or something in our lives that's taking the place of God or being placed above God and has become an idol, we're to keep ourselves from all of it. Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. This means that Paul didn't make light of it. He didn't make excuses for their idolatry. Well, that's just the Athenians. It's just how they do things, it's how they roll. He didn't compromise and begin to accept them. No, he was stirred by these things to action, as we're going to see now in verse 17. And so, verse 17, Luke continues to record for us. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Paul's response here in this verse to what we're told in verse 16 is powerful. His spirit was provoked. He was stirred inwardly. I'm sure in there, there was some righteous indignation, some righteous jealousy as not only a Christian, but a a Jew who was a Pharisee, Earlier on in his life, just how badly that would rub Paul the wrong way to see all of the rampant idolatry that was an affront to the holiness of God. He was stirred by that. which gave him an even greater burden to bring the gospel to these people. You ever found yourself and you're looking out at the world, you're looking out at different situations that happen, and you find in yourself a similar sort of thing? You're feeling provoked in your spirit by something that's Blatantly wrong, blatantly sinful, blatantly wicked or evil. And there's something in you that, that just gets provoked. There. In, inwardly, in your spirit, you're going, this isn't right. And, and that's, there's a good aspect to that provoking. We should be jealous for the holiness of our God, we should be jealous for righteousness to prevail. The part that's often the problem is what happens after our spirit's provoked. I think it's fairly easy to state in our day that there is this provoking of spirit that's happened in a lot of people. And the next step that's followed to to that provoking is, is sort of an outrage. I'm outraged by what's going on. I'm angry at what's going on. And the problem with the outrage sort of prevailing mindset that we're seeing, especially in social media in these days, is the outrage is actually taking away from any opportunity for outreach. I'm so outraged at what's going on that I'm finding it hard to now bring myself to have any sort of outreach sort of mentality. If our outrage is keeping us from outreach, then there's a problem. There's a problem in how we are responding to what we're seeing in the world. Paul's example here is beautiful. Paul had this righteous indignation. He had a a desire for holiness. And man, like this is an affront to the heart of God to see all of the rampant idolatry that was taking place. But notice what didn't happen. He didn't go out into the city of Athens and just start blasting people, devaluing people, telling them how stupid they are. Just a bunch of morons believing in all these idols. No, the provoking of spirit led to a burden that then led to compassion, to want to reach out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. If there was any sort of outrage that took place in Paul's life by the time that he processed that between him and the Lord and he got to the very first person at the synagogue, that outrage was left at the foot of the cross. And he was able to see people, not as the enemy, but as those who had been taken captive by the enemy and needed saving. Paul, he sees all this, his spirit's provoked within him. He, the next thing we find is he goes to the synagogue. He just picks up where he knows God would have him go. I'm going to go to where people are at. I'm going to go to the synagogue, and I'm going to, even though we're not told it explicitly, we know Paul's pattern, he would go and he would explain and demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, The long-awaited Messiah, that Old Testament prophecy pointed forward to him. It was fulfilled in him. You'd reason with them from the scriptures. But we also see Paul didn't just go to the synagogue. He then reasoned in the marketplace, we're told, daily with those who happened to be there. The marketplace, also known as the Agora, was not just where buying and selling took place. It was also the gathering place for the people of the city. It was the center of civic life. It was the hub. And it was in that place where people were that Paul reasoned. He discussed about the life Death and resurrection of Jesus with those who happened to be there. Paul's spirit, being provoked by the rampant idolatry, didn't make him an angry and bitter person, blasting people for their wickedness. No, no. It, instead, it made him a compassionate preacher who saw the desperate spiritual state of the people and was moved by that compassion to action, sharing the gospel of Jesus with them so that they could be saved. But look at what we go on to see in verse 18. It says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Some scholars believe that this proclaimer of foreign gods was actually a misunderstanding on the philosopher's part, that when they heard Paul say, Jesus and Anastasis, Jesus and the resurrection, that they thought that, Paul was referring to two deities, that Jesus and resurrection, Anastasis, was the other deity that Paul maybe was trying, he was trying to proclaim to them. So there was maybe some sort of a misunderstanding there, although that's speculation. But as Paul reasoned, as he discussed, as he preached to those who passed by in the marketplace, two different groups of philosophers who belonged to two different schools of thought encountered Paul and began a discussion with Paul who had begun to preach to them. Check out what the Bible Knowledge Commentary had to say about these two philosophical, philosophical camps that Paul encountered as he preached in the marketplace. We're told in the Bible Knowledge com- Commentary that the primary antagonists of Paul in the Agora were the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans who followed Epicurus said the chief end of man was pleasure and happiness. This pleasure, they believed, is attained by avoiding excess and the fear of death by seeking tranquility and freedom from pain and by loving mankind. They believed that if gods exist, they do not become involved in human events. The Stoics, on the other hand, were followers of a philosopher named Zeno and got their name from the painted portico or stoa where he traditionally taught in Athens. Pantheistic in their view, they felt a great purpose was directing history. Man's responsibility was to fit himself and align himself with this purpose through tragedy and triumph. Goes on to say, quite obviously, this outlook, while it produced certain noble qualities, also resulted in inordinate pride and self-sufficiency, Paul reasoned with these people, and he preached Jesus and the resurrection to them, and there seemed to be two general responses to Paul's reasoning and preaching. First, some of them said, what does this babbler want to say? That word babbler carried the sense of a a word scavenger, a parasitic person who accumulated teachings and sayings of others, especially those who would later use the sayings for their own profit. The first response of some was to mock or disrespect or insult Paul. A second, some others said, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So not not all mocked, some were just confused or skeptical of what Paul was preaching about and thought that he was trying to proclaim some new foreign gods that they hadn't yet heard of. But I want us to notice that the responses that Paul received as he preached Jesus and the, re- and the resurrection are similar responses that we might receive when we seek to preach Jesus and the resurrection. Some might mock us. You want They might want to make us look stupid or foolish, maybe even disrespecting or insulting us as we proclaim Jesus to them. Others that we preach to might just be confused or skeptical, like, I don't really get it. Or, you know what, I'm not really sure I believe what you're preaching about. Handling confusion or skepticism is is one thing, but it can be really difficult to handle someone who's mocking us because our pride can get involved, allowing the mocking to offend or wound or anger us. You know, we can have patience on someone who's confused or skeptical as we seek to share Jesus with them, but we can easily shift into a completely wrong gear if, we're, if we feel that we're being mocked or insulted or disrespected or, or dishonored, it, and begin to see that person as an enemy. In those moments, we have to remember what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. Check out what Jesus said in Luke 6, verses 27 through 29. Jesus speaking, he said, But I say to you who here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Notice what he says in the first part of verse 29. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. This striking on the cheek uh, was not talking about being passive in the face of physical assault. Culturally, the slap on the cheek was more an attack on someone's honor than a physical assault. So Jesus isn't prohibiting defense. He's prohibiting retaliation in the face of a grievous insult. You know, when someone dishonors or disrespects or insults or mocks us, we can easily want to retaliate. Jesus spoke to that area of pride in us that wants to retaliate when we feel dishonored or disrespected and tells us that the response of agape love is to not only not retaliate, but to humbly and lovingly allow an enemy to dishonor us, and this is important for us to keep in mind in our witnessing. See, when we retaliate, when we become offended, uh, offended and then offensive, we shut the door of opportunity to continue to share about Jesus. Paul didn't retaliate. He didn't become offended. He didn't close his heart off to these people when they insulted him, when they mocked him, when they ridiculed him. No, he kept the door open. He was gracious and patient and continued keeping the discussion open as he preached Jesus. There's so much we can learn from Paul's example here as we seek to engage lost people with the gospel and and might find ourselves on the receiving end at times of, of insults or mocking or skepticism learning a very needed sort of thing for us in the body of Christ, which is to have tough skin, but a soft heart towards people. Why, when we're talking to somebody at Jesus and they don't want anything to do with us, do we allow it at times to become an attack of us? You know, when we're preaching the gospel, we're not preaching us, right? It's not about us at all, in fact. It's about Jesus and what Jesus has done. But what can happen when we're talking to somebody is we can start to feel like, gosh, now we, we make it about us when they respond in a certain way. And it can cause us to do a couple different things. We can, be, we can become offended Or we can just start to shut down. And we have to really fight against that. We have to really pray through in our day where people are increasingly offensive, not just just unbelievers, but there's an acceptability even within Christendom in our days of being an offensive person. That we have to really stay away from. We don't see Jesus being offensive in how he presented the kingdom of God and how he loved people. We don't see Paul or the other apostles devaluing people as they sought to share the gospel with people. No, they came in humility. They came in gentleness. They came with a giving of honor to somebody even if that person might not have deserved it. Because those are the sorts of things that give us access to a person's heart. Guys, no one wants to feel disrespected or devalued by somebody, ever. There's never a time where we like it. And when we feel that way, it wounds us. And we start to shut down or we start to take the fight to the person. And when we think about what we've been called to as the people of God, to make our lives about the glory of Christ, about the the death and resurrection of Jesus, about eternal things... If we don't learn to have a Christ like response to all the different kinds of emotions and responses and reactions and all the things that people might bring our way, guys, we're going to miss so many opportunities if we follow suit with what we're seeing a lot of within social media, of of looking at lost people and, you know, railing on them, guys, we're going to lose our credibility. We're going to lose our opportunity. Again, we have to be careful that in, in our outrage inwardly, that that doesn't cut off our our main purpose of outreach, of pointing people to Jesus Christ. So much we can learn from Paul's example here. Well, let's continue on and look at verses 19 through 21. It says in verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this What this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Because they were uncertain about Paul and his message, they bring him to the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill or the or the hill of Ares. It was an elevated area in Athens where a, a council met together to provide oversight to matters of religion and education which in former times was more of a judicial council actually in the city of Athens. Once they bring him to the Areopagus where the council came together they ask Paul, "Hey, we want to know this doctrine, this new thing that you're speaking about. We want you to bring it forward because, you know, it seems really strange to us. It seems like a novel sort of thing that you're bringing. We want to know what it means. And the reason for their curios- curiosity is made clear in verse 21 that all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, they spent all of their free time in nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. They had a hunger, they had a thirst for more and more knowledge. They had a a desire to learn or share new things and their lives revolved around this unending desire for something new that was never satisfied. This reminded me of what Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7, after describing the kind of perilous times and the kinds of perilous people that we'll find in the last days he's saying that these people in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7 are always learning and never ever ne, uh, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's this constant searching for more but never finding what they're searching for. Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because they're searching in all the wrong places. They're not searching for those things in the Lord and his word, which are the only sources of truth. You know, this, is definitely an, this was definitely an accurate description of the Athenians, but it's also an accurate description of many people in our world today, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The council there on the Areopagus, they asked Paul for an explanation. They, they asked for clarity about what he was preaching about since they must have gotten some word back from these two philosophical schools of people who shared what they thought Paul was preaching about regarding Jesus and the resurrection. But their desire to hear new things was now going to provide Paul with the opportunity to preach to these people. See, because Paul didn't close the door of witnessing in the marketplace by being angry or offended by their mocking, their insults, their disrespect, the door was now wide open for him to share with those in this council. And that's what we begin to see now as Paul responds, starting in verses 22 and 23, and we're only going to barely scratch the surface here as we're going to look at the full address that Paul makes next next week. But in verses 22 and 23, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. I love how Paul begins to address this council of leaders on the Areopagus. He speaks to them respectfully and graciously. He tells them, you know what? I perceive, I've witnessed this, that in all things, you guys are very religious. In today's lingo, we might say you're very spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual people out there nowadays, isn't there? You're like, so what, where are you at? Like, I'm just, I'm really spiritual. What? What does that mean? It, like, someone says spiritual, you're like, I don't, what is that? Where, where are you coming from? Like spiritual and What? Spiritual as in you have a spirit, like spiritual as in you believe in spirits, like spiritual in that you believe in anything, like where, like that doesn't define anything. When some, it's the same way when somebody says they're religious, like, oh, okay, I'm just a very religious person, cool. Now we need to find some sort of starting point here in our conversation because that doesn't really tell me a whole lot uh, about where you're at uh, spiritually where you're really at before the Lord. Notice Paul doesn't talk about how he saw the altar to the unknown God and then begin to mock them for it. Like, wow, you guys are so crazy that atop of the 30,000 plus gods you have in this city... Outnumbering people three to one at least. You even have an altar with an inscription to the unknown god. You're like, well, gosh, if I, I might have forgotten one of them. So let's set up an altar and put to the unknown god, just so we, you know, err on the safe side. For any of us, we might look at that and just go, that is the that is so crazy. But Paul doesn't call them crazy. He doesn't call them dumb. He says. I perceive you guys are religious. You're searching. I see that there's this desire in you for something, something beyond yourself. And he, and he stays in that position of gentleness, of humility, of respect. He obviously didn't agree with that. It's not like he was cool with all the idols. He wasn't, you know, accepting of the unknown God altar that he found, but he didn't need to accept all that to give these people some sort of value before the Lord. Now, Paul, like Jesus, looked at lost people with a, heart of deep compassion a compassion that led paul to respond to lost people in love and a desire to see them saved compassion that helped him to see people as sheep in need of a shepherd instead of as an enemy to battle against or to avoid And we need that same heart of compassion for lost people today. I would, ele- I would elevate that even. I would say we need a heart of compassion for people. Because it's not just compassion for lost people, it's a compassion even for saved people that seems to be in short supply in a lot of ways in our day. Man, I'm disheartened. When I scroll through social media and I see popular preachers and posts and memes and different things, man, it like, it, my spirit's provoked within me. Seeing people posting things about, we're not sheep, we're the lions. It's like, first of all, nowhere in Scripture are believers ever called lions. There is a verse in Proverbs that says the righteous are as bold as lions, bold, but not taking the position of a lion, calling other people sheep in comparison with how they're the lions who are awake and alert and all these things. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. It's unloving. It's sickening. It hurts my heart to see it. I think about Jesus in Matthew 24 when he's speaking about what we'll find in the last days, saying that the love of many will grow cold. I, I see it. And it's not just of unbelievers having their love grow cold, it's believers. We don't know how to uphold righteousness and love unrighteous people at the same time, so we throw the unrighteous people out so that we can uphold the righteousness. Those things can both exist at the same time. We can stand on the truth of God's word and we can hold fast to the truth of scripture and we can love sinners at the same time. We've got to learn to push back against some of the things that we're seeing in our day that just are, it's like just, it, it beca- it's becoming like a trend of thought. It's becoming sort of a philosophy within Christianity of how to deal with what we're seeing. And I get it. It's hard to know how to navigate what we're seeing. There's so many things that it's like, I don't, know what to get to not be angry about like i don't know how to not be in this place of outrage like i i get that like we're in weird times like i get that we're in dark days but didn't the bible already speak into that like hasn't god's word already prepared us for that He didn't say, until you get in the last days, then just hate everybody. <laughs> just be mad at everybody. Keep to your own little Christian bubble. Stay away. Join a hermitage. Like No, like we are here for a reason. Like God's placed us where we're at. He's put people around us in our lives that don't agree with us. How are we going to navigate it? How, are we do, how do we move forward? How do we keep the door open while not agreeing on certain things? It is possible. It should be able to happen. It should be happening within us because we're prioritizing a greater kingdom above ours. We have different values and the values of this world. Guys, whether it's just complete atheistic, humanistic thought or whether it's I believe in anything and everything, we, we have it. It's, it's all around us. And yet you and I have the answers. You and I don't have to change the message. You and I have, don't, not, don't have to like find some sort of gimmick. We just need to keep making our lives and our message Jesus. It just needs to stay on Jesus. His death and his burial and his resurrection, that is the solution. That's the solution. It doesn't matter what the problem is that we're trying to navigate. That is the solution. You and I have to be especially prayerful in these days. When stuff gets more confusing, don't rely on your own understanding. When stuff gets more polluted, don't trust in your way. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep leaning on the Lord. Keep seeking the Lord. He will give you the wisdom that you need, that I need that we need as a church to know how to be a community of believers who stand firm in the truth of the gospel, yet can look out and love people that are living totally contrary to biblical values. The Athenians that Paul was sharing with they were open to everything but not really settled on anything they were ultra inclusive spiritually to the point where they have this altar somewhere in athens with the inscription to the unknown god but in that they showed their ignorance their lack of knowledge of the one true god yahweh They knew about a lot of gods, but they were missing out on knowing the only true God who wanted them to know him personally and in knowing him receive his gift of eternal life. You know, while Jesus was unknown to this council, Paul found his opportunity to make Jesus known to them. And as we're going to see in our study next week, as he's speaking to Gentiles who didn't know the scriptures, Paul's gonna preach to them. Uh, Paul is not going to preach to them, sorry, as he would to those in a synagogue, but instead he's gonna use the example of the unknown God that they were ignorant of to ultimately point them to the resurrected Jesus. We're gonna get into that next week, but I'm gonna have the worship team come back up. Guys, as we look around the Bay Area and our world, we see that our cities and nation and our world are, are given over to idols, the, the worship of other things than the one true God. And it can be hard to see. It can be really hard. But what's our response? What's our response? How is the love, the, the gospel, the commission of Jesus influencing the way that we see and engage with and respond to lost and captive people. Guys, we need Jesus to give us his heart of compassion for those that are lost. Not a heart of empathy necessarily. Empathy is great. See somebody that's hurting and you can hurt with them. But compassion. Compassion is love in action. It's love demonstrated. We need Jesus to give us his heart of compassion for those that are lost, and then boldness to bring his love and his gospel to them. We need creativity. We need wisdom, we need discernment. and Guys, we need a whole lot of grace to navigate all the confusion. Everything that's just nonsense that's going on in our world, we need the grace and wisdom of God in an even greater supply in these days. But I love it that in James chapter 4, James says that he gives more grace. He gives more grace, but the way to to be given more grace is only found when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of the Lord. Guys, if there's pride in our lives, if we're just operating in our pride and what we think and how we think things should be we're going to miss out on all the grace that god's wanting to give abundantly and when we're missing out on receiving that grace you can bet none of us are showing it we don't know how to we can't show grace if we're not receiving it some of us we're going gosh i need wisdom and then we're going to all these sources to get it that aren't the lord What kind of wisdom are we getting? He wants to be the one who directs us. That we would trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not lean on our own understanding, but all our ways. We acknowledge him. We include him. We run things by him. When we do that, he'll make our path, straight not in us just being able to navigate how crazy everything is but navigating how we're able to step through doors and bringing the gospel to people to trust in the lord in those things we might not have all the answers to all these things we don't clearly but the Lord does. I think we today, as we read in our Bible reading this past week, we need need a fresh dose of what Isaiah got to experience in Isaiah chapter six. Seeing the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filling the temple with glory. The doorposts Of the house shaking. Say woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Who lives. With a people of unclean lips. You know sometimes it's easy to. to Forget. Guys our own need. For the Lord. Sometimes what we find ourselves doing is just going, woe to the world. They're unclean and I'm different. Woe to the world. But what about woe is me? Lord, wreck me, break me, break my heart for those things that break yours. Lord, shake the doorposts of my heart. Get me out of places of complacency or apathy or compromise. Lord, shake me up inwardly. Stir me. touch my lips with the coal from the altar. Lord, purge me so that we're a prepared people that when the voice of the Lord calls out to us, who shall we send? Who will go for us? That our hearts would be in that right place to say like Isaiah, Lord, here am I. Send me here my lord use me let's pray lord god we thank you for your word lord we thank you for the example of the apostle paul lord as he sought to minister lord in a city that was overrun by idolatry God, that he had your heart for lost people. And God, we confess today, Lord, that we don't always have your heart for lost people. Lord, we don't even always have your heart for saved people. God, we need you to do a work in us. Lord, a work of softening us. Lord, a work of humbling us. Lord, a work of causing our priorities to be in the right order. Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart of compassion for people. Lord, that you would give us your eyes, Lord, to see people the way that you do. Lord, would you burden us, God, for those things that you desire to see happen, Lord, which is those, Lord, that are captive to the enemy, being brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of your kingdom, finding freedom, Lord, finding real life, Lord. Eternal life. It's only found in Jesus. Lord, help us to know how to navigate these times that we live in. God, help us to know how to respond, Lord, when we do share your gospel and someone just maybe sticks it to us, Lord, just rubs us the wrong way or insults us or disrespects us. Lord, God, give us tough skin but a soft heart. God, that we wouldn't be easily offended, we wouldn't be easily provoked. But Lord, that we would be quick to love. Lord, quick to be gracious, quick to be respectful, quick to give honor and value to others, Lord, even if they don't deserve it. God, we desire even greater open doors to bring your gospel, Lord, to lost people in these days. Lord, we pray that you would make those paths straight. Lord, you'd give us wisdom. Lord, you give us more grace. Maybe somebody today is is joined us and you know what's needed is just like a, a a real heart change. Like maybe you're just noticing some things in your life that just, you know what? It's not, it's stuff's stuff's out of alignment my my perspective of people my perspective of life just things are things aren't where they should be just to encourage you in your own heart just to to repent of those things to confess those things to the Lord to not make excuses for them say Lord do a fresh work in my life do a fresh work of your grace a fresh work of your love God that You would help me to know how to honor you, Lord, and how I see people and how I respond to people and situations. Maybe today even someone's joined us who doesn't know the Lord personally. I encourage you, if that's you, just in your own heart, that you would say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I want your salvation. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you cleanse me of all unrighteousness? Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, I repent of my sin today. I turn away from it. And Lord, I turn to you in faith. Jesus, I put my trust in you today. Jesus, save me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I just encourage you, if if you've made that decision, if you've prayed that prayer, if you've believed in your heart, genuinely, the Bible says you will be saved. Lord, as we... Respond now to your word in songs of praise. Lord, continue as we sang in the beginning to open the eyes of our hearts. God, help us to see clearly, Lord, who you are, but also who we are in light of who you you are. Lord, our need for you. God, would we give you all the worship that you deserve, Lord forsaking all idols that you jesus would be enthroned alone on the seat of our hearts jesus we thank you we love you we praise you now in jesus name amen